0: I uh, thought I would speak tonight about Thanksgiving. I was trying to decide, should I speak to it tonight, or should I wait till next Sunday? And then somebody said, no, you should speak to it tonight, because for some people it's actually dukkha. It's difficult, Thanksgiving. And so maybe it'd be good to give them all a heads up um, about... To maybe some ways to think about it, and work with it as part of our practice. How we might think about this idea of Thanksgiving from a Buddhist perspective. And um, and and when I thought about what the person said, when they said this about that it's dukkha, that it's suffering, I thought, well, yeah, this is suffering. Maybe if we have we go and we're around our family or our parents or you know something, and it's not it's not so great. Or maybe there's a suffering that we're alone on Thanksgiving, and that's a certain kind of suffering that one might have. But I actually thought the deepest suffering around Thanksgiving is not to feel our thanks for what's given, not to actually be in touch with what's been given, not to feel our gratitude. That, For me, that's actually the deepest sorrow, the deepest dukkha the deepest suffering because then we're really missing something about what's here and what's be, been given to us and what's being offered to us even now and so I'd like to talk a little about thanksgiving both the holiday and but more more a little more essentially the concept and the idea of giving thanks of appreciating of having gratitude for what's been given. And I like to look up words, as many of you know, and so I looked up thanksgiving. See, what what does that mean, thanksgiving? And and the first definition is the act of giving thanks, an expression of gratitude, especially to God. So I thought, well, you know, we don't do God in Buddhism in that way, so how, how might we think about it? Some people like to Substitute, um, you know, for the theistic kind of personal God model, we go to the East and the non theistic, we substitute the Dharma or the truth of the way things are or um, the absolute or um, reality. and so we could, we could substitute a little bit that there's a gratitude especially to the Dharma, to what's given, that this is all, remember Dharma is a very broad word. It includes everything. The Dharma includes everything. Nothing's excluded from the Dharma. So the whole universe is the Dharma. Everything that manifests is part of the Dharma. <clears throat> and so it's, that's one way we could start to think about Thanksgiving: is appreciating the Dharma, the the mystery of reality, and the unfoldment of reality, the revelation of reality, the presentation of reality, which is really part of what we are. <clears throat> and then it said a second definition: a public acknowledgement or celebration of divine goodness. And that's also a way we can translate and we might not use God, but we might talk about the divine or the sacred or the holy in life itself. That part of life, part of Dharma, part of our practice is to begin to see the sacred, to know the sacred, recognize the numinous in reality, in in ourselves, because we are an expression of that reality. And um, and then there was a third definition that I really liked, really liked. And it said, so it said a public acknowledgement or celebration of divine goodness um, um, in setting apart a day or in the ordinary dispensation of his bounty. Or we could say the ordinary dispensation of her bounty. Or the ordinary dispensation of... The of what's given here. And I, I like that a lot because it takes it out of the loftiness of some of the language of God, the God language, and starts to root it right here, in now. And that's something we really value in Buddhism. We value this moment. We value now. We value the ordinary dispensation of reality, the beauty or the delight or the mystery of each moment. Not some super special moment, not some moment where, you know, the God realms open up and the lights come and everything is flashing. Those are nice too, when those moments come, I like those moments but also this moment, the ordinary dispensation, the ordinary goodness, uh, which Suzuki Roshi would speak about. He would say, he would use this phrase, just to be alive is enough, just to be alive is enough. And we know that, we forget it, we forget it a zillion times. But in a moment of wakefulness we actually know just to be alive is enough. that what we seek, what we desire, what we love, what we care for, it's right here. When the eyes and the ears are open, Kabir says, even the pages of the even the leaves on the trees read like pages from the scriptures. right When we're really here, when we really see another person, where we really see the divine intelligence of uh, all of humanity, the evolution of humanity is 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 epitomized even in just this building. The lights, electricity, things we take for granted, the ordinary. That part of our practice is not to take the ordinary for granted. And I want to be careful here, because it doesn't mean that we won't take it for granted. This is very Zen. It's, you, you, I want to say, I want to decode the Zen. So I say, "Don't take the ordinary for granted," and then some people are going to feel like, "Oh if I take, ever take the ordinary for granted, then I'm missing the point." But it's not. Of course we're going to take the ordinary for granted, but maybe a little bit less and less. Maybe that's the more skillful way to think about it. That we can start to see the beauty of the ordinary, the magic of the ordinary, the goodness of what's here. And then when we actually see it, when we're here, when the eyes and the ears are open, the thanksgiving is very natural. It's not even something we have to do. The gratitude is not something that we have to create. It's the heart's natural expression to seeing what's here, to seeing how unique each person actually is, to seeing how, um, 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 on one hand, timeless, and how ephemeral each moment is. How ephemeral each moment is. How we, we kind of take it for granted our moments, we take our time for granted, we take our life for granted. And the Dharma has this possibility of waking us up, of beginning to line us with reality, with the truth of the way things are, not as an idea, but as something that infuses our being, that, it, that changes our whole orientation towards life. <clears throat> And so, another way we could talk about this is really this idea of um, gratitude, you know, gratitude to God or the acknowledgement of the divine or the what sometimes referred to as the divine mystery, and the ordinary dispensation of Thy bounty are not two separate things that maybe the divine is right here within the ordinary, within the everyday, within the mundane, within the traffic light changing, within the sound of the car horn, you know, within our cup of coffee in the morning, even Starbucks. <laughs> they don't think of Starbucks as kind of you know, an expression of God's divine manifestation. (laughs) But it is, that's the real paradox. (laughs) This is from Ryokan. He said, the bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. That's, that's, that's the mind, the heart of being awake, of being here, of being in the present, not being caught in our past, even if we've seen something a thousand times. How many times do we see a friend, or a partner, or a co-worker, and think we know them? And then there'll be a moment where we we forget that we know them. And and they're like, Who is this person? Really who is this person? And it's so delightful not to know. Why is it delightful not to know? Because then the freshness, the aliveness, the beauty, the mystery of the moment is precious is here. And, and, and I, again, I want to say, we'll get the, the vision, the seeing, the knowing, the wakefulness, it gets occluded, it gets covered over, it gets lost. We don't have to blame ourselves for that. That's just the way it is also. Even, even our ignorance is part of this ordinary magic. Even our ignorance, even our suffering, from from the really the place of non-duality, it's all the expression of one, one thing, one mysterious arising now. Whether we see it as divine or mundane or beautiful or difficult. You know, there's a Zen story, you know, so much depends on just our perspective. Somebody I was talking to recently said, came up and talked to me about um, meditating and said, oh, I'm having anxiety when I'm meditating, and I said, oh, is that a problem, right? Because that's really the question, or is it just anxiety? We think of anxiety as a problem. We tend to view it that way. But is it possible to bring mindfulness, to bring compassion, to bring wakefulness even to our anxiety, our fear, our discomfort, our sorrow, our confusion? And what happens then as we get present? And this is the interesting paradox because we can talk in these lofty realms about gods you know grace but what's the grace of mindfulness what is that because there is a grace there when we get present with our anxiety when we get present with whatever our heart ache or break or fear might be that there is a certain grace that happens with mindfulness practice where well, we see that our whole perspective can shift. And then it's not a bad thing. It's just anxiety. And then it's just, wow, it's just a lot of energy. Then it's just, oh, I don't even know what to do with this energy. And then, and then as we stay mindful allow ourselves to feel it, it feels like we're going to just dissolve. And then we let ourselves dissolve. And then dissolving is not even so bad. And it's like, oh, maybe this is what they were talking about. Dissolving is actually good. That I'm not here in the way I've been holding myself, thinking myself, creating myself, remembering myself. And the dissolving allows for this wakefulness, aliveness, freshness, immediacy. That is, of course, possible in any moment. so we could celebrate or acknowledge divine mindfulness the grace of mindfulness the beauty of mindfulness which is really the beauty of our own wakefulness of our own heart and mind coming into alignment with the way things are being open to reality and letting reality reveal itself then to us EQ the rogue Zen monk who I like, he said, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as priceless. It all depends where we're sitting. It all depends what we, how we perceive reality. If we're perceiving from our habit, from our ideas, from our beliefs, you know, That's not a horrible thing. But when they start to let go, when we start to move more into the present, anything can happen. This brick house I live in is really the sky and just as priceless. And part of our practice in being mindful, being kindful, and being present and waking up is to study suffering is to study the pain the difficulty to learn how to get present with it to learn how to see what what is suffer what is pain and what is suffering what's the difference between the two because a certain amount of pain is inherent to human life to sentient life but suffering may be extra may have to do with our conditioning, with our um, grasping or pushing away of reality. And so part of our practice is to work very closely to begin to open to suffering as part of the vehicle to freedom. But part of our practice is not just to perceive suffering, but to perceive the absence of suffering, the freedom from suffering, the moments when suffering is in abeyance, when self concern, self consciousness, self centeredness has relaxed. You ever notice how if you go to a party or something and you feel self conscious, that it's not it's not fun. <laughs> You notice that? If you're worried about how you look or how you're coming across or what people are thinking, it's no fun. But if you go and you're somewhere and there's no self-concern, it's like really fun to be with people. It's fun to allow reality to just happen. And partly we want to begin to recognize suffering, understand suffering, practice with suffering, but also recognize freedom, understand freedom. Celebrate the goodness of our practice and our realization, our understanding, our freedom. And so to see both what's difficult and what's beautiful. Thich Nhat Han puts it this way in his wonderful way that he writes and talks. He says, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is a pleasurable feeling. <laughs> but when we do not but when we do not have a toothache, most of us are unaware of this pleasant feeling. So let me make you aware of this pleasant feeling right now, right? For those of us who don't have a toothache or a backache, or whatever kind of aches you have sometime, when it's absent, we can enjoy the absence of suffering. He says, most of us are unaware of this pleasant feeling when we do not have a toothache. Only after we become blind will we be aware that having eyes to see the blue sky and white clouds is miraculous. While we can see, we are rarely aware of this miracle, practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. So, so pay attention right now to the fact that you can see. And it's even, it's a very interesting mindfulness practice to start to be mindful of what is seeing. Not just the phenomena itself, that, that's pretty amazing, but then what is seeing. We, we so take it for granted, seeing, that we often are not mindful of it. And again, I think for me, this is one of my favorite parts of mindfulness, is that we don't take anything for granted, ultimately. We're actually curious, interested, and want to wake up in every part of our life. And so seeing or hearing, they're so common, it's like the air we breathe, we don't really notice it, or the space. We don't notice the space often. We're more aware of the the objects within space. But even to notice the space is to start to notice something we don't usually pay attention to. And it starts to break the trance of how we get attached to our seeing or our hearing and the objects of what we see and the labeling of sound and the distinct way we create reality when in fact it might not be so absolutely distinct. And if we understand in some way the truth of impermanence we know it's there's no solid thing here anywhere. No sound is solid, no image is solid, no person is solid. no thing even is solid. We know that from physics. Maybe at first it's hard to imagine that we can, we can actually begin to perceive this as a living reality. But Dharma practice, the meditation practice itself, will start to reveal this truth to us as an experiential truth, not as an intellectual truth. And even just feeling our bodies and breath, we so take it for granted that they're a thing, our body. And so if we start to drop our attention into our body, feel our body, sense it, start to feel our breath, and then not even to know what a body is or a breath is really, because the body is not the idea of body, the breath is not the idea of breath, but there's something more fundamental, more essential reality that's alive, that's mysterious in and of itself. One of my tricks on meditation when I go do retreats is I start with the breath and I'm mindful of the breath and then when I really get settled I say to myself, okay Eugene, you don't know what a breath is. And then the breath just goes from there. Because I don't know. I know what the word is but the living reality is different, in, absolutely different in every moment. You know, the bamboo grove outside of my hut, I see it a thousand times and never tire of it. It can happen with your breath. A little more on long retreat, it can happen. It's like the breath becomes one's beloved because it shows it shows us the reality of now. The aliveness and freshness and immediacy and unfathomable... Uh, um, a possibility of this moment. And then you can never explain that to somebody who's never done breath meditation. You can never explain that. You can only suggest that they stay with their breath a little longer to see what's possible. And so to appreciate what's beautiful, what's miraculous... And even what's difficult, even what's difficult, it's it's a little harder. It's a little harder. But you might reflect. Sometimes we can see it more in hindsight. Some of the most difficult things that have happened to us, when we get enough time and distance, there's a kind of appreciation. I remember I was going to tell you that Zen story. I'll tell it now. You know, there's a Zen story. I'll just paraphrase. But a young man goes off. He's in the woods or... Somewhere in a field, and he, he um, captures a wild horse, beautiful wild horse, gorgeous horse, and he brings it back. And you know, he's so happy and proud, and everybody's, you know, really how lucky he is to get this horse. And then he's training the horse the next day, he's teaching it to, you know, it's he's breaking it basically. It, but it doesn't work, the horse throws him, and he breaks his leg instead. And so now everybody said, oh, that horse, it's no good, it's horrible. And then the next day, war breaks out in his state, and they're conscripting all the young men. But he can't go, because he's got a broken leg. Now it's a good thing. right? And so, you know, it can go back or forth, depending on what's happening in our perspective on what's happening. And so you might reflect for a moment on something difficult that's happened for you. Painful. We don't want to deny the difficulty. We're not trying to Pollyanna anything. But some of the most difficult things have actually helped us in the long run. And I think just, you know, in 12 steps, sometimes they talk about hitting bottom. And that's a good thing to finally hit bottom. And bottom may be the hardest thing, but then there's a turning towards something better from that difficulty. And Rumi writes about a priest who prays for thieves and muggers. He prays for them. And he says, because they have done me such generous favors, every time I turn back towards the things they want, I run into them. They beat me and leave me in the road. And I understand again that what they want is not what I want. Those who made you return for whatever reasons to the spirit, be grateful for them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort that keeps you from your prayers. Should I read that again? Yeah, okay. He says, because the priest prays for thieves and muggers because they have done me such generous favors Every time I turn back towards the things they want, I run into them. They beat me and leave me in the road, and I understand again that what they want is not what I want. Those who make you return for whatever reasons to the Spirit, be grateful to them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort that keeps you from your prayers. I was reading that and I remembered something that happened to me a long, long time ago. But I was, um, when I was very young, and I was a musician, and I was very enamored with jazz, I was playing improvised music, and very enamored with the bebop scene and the (coughs) post-bop. And so I was emulating some of the people that I liked thinking that I had to do what they did in order to play what they played. So I was fooling around with heroin, actually. It's a long time ago. And then one day, somebody who I'd done some heroin with uh, rang the bell, and I ran down. I didn't know who was there. I opened the door, and boom! I got punched in the face. Broke my nose, and I actually had my flute in my hand. I remember, even as I got hit... I was more worried about my flute than anything. I was like, as I was falling, I was I a was brand new flute. I just didn't want to get my flute hurt. Um, and But I was also talking very quickly to try to keep from getting hit again, um, which was very skillful actually. Because this guy who, who was actually much more um, sophisticated or let's put it, he was much more into heroin than I was. I was just chipping, as they said back then, probably still say Um, um, thought I had done something I hadn't done and so I was quickly explaining that hey man, I didn't do that and that was it, he just hit me the once but it was great it wasn't fun, I didn't like getting hit, I didn't like having my nose broken and having to have it reset later, you know but he really turned me away from something. Because it was like this is not what I want to be doing with my life is hanging out with people like that who were, you know, struggling like that, who were suffering in that way at that time. And it really it really ended my infatuation with that world. And it was a good thing, even though it was a difficult thing. <clears throat> So, giving thanks. Thanksgiving. Part of, of thanksgiving is literally that it's a giving. That we offer our thanks, we offer our appreciation, we offer our gratitude, our gratefulness. And it means that we're in touch with something. We're in touch with seeing how much or what has been given to us. And even here, just that we're here tonight means that a lot has been given. That you have the time, you have the inclination, uh, that we've been given the Dharma. Even that. I mean it's something we just take for granted, oh like Buddhism, and that it's here. But it it didn't, it might not have been this way. You know, the Buddha actually debated about whether to teach or not. He wasn't going to teach at first. He had his awakening, and he thought to himself, "This is too um, too subtle for people. They'll never get it." And then there's a whole thing where a Brahma God comes and has this dialogue with him, and convinces him to teach for the benefit of us, right? For it's it's actually quite personal. The Buddha taught for our benefit. He gave his life from that point on for our benefit. That the teaching wouldn't be here in this way, in this shape, in this form without the Buddha's awakening and then his deciding to teach and devote his, some I believe, 35 years of walking the earth and teaching the Dharma. And this teaching is here right now. So there's the thanks, the appreciation, the gratitude, and the giving of it. Thanksgiving. It's a it's it's it implies a mutuality of giving and receiving and giving again. That we're being given, and that part of receiving it, part of really receiving it, is acknowledging it. And in acknowledging it, we're giving our thanks. And so it's got a circular flavor to it it's got a. Um, uh, it's not sometimes people think oh, they're being selfish or they've gotten too much or something there's some kind of limitation or some feeling that we shouldn't feel so appreciative or we shouldn't have whatever we have We shouldn't have so much. We shouldn't have, you know, we all have clothes here. We've all had enough food to be here. We've all had this building here right now. Just for example, and of course you can take any part of your life, any place in your life, and start to look at it and look at what's been given. And again, it doesn't mean that there's not suffering, there's been not pain, not difficulty, not dukkha. And there will be. But we want to see both sides, Practice is to see both sides. And if you notice you're attached to just seeing suffering, that's a really good thing to see your attachment, because that's the beginning of being free of the suffering. And so for some people, like let's say on a, on a retreat, we might ha- actually have people be really mindful of their suffering on a retreat. But for some people on retreat, we might start to focus on, oh, for you, it's actually need. What's needed is to pay attention to the not suffering, to what's good. Sometimes part of practices will have some people go out on a long retreat, and so you have to go out and see what's beautiful in the world as part of your practice today. And in some ways, this is the balance and the circular circularity cyclical nature of reality itself. It's not any one thing. Emerson talks about the endless circulation of divine charity, divine giving. The wind blows the seed, the sun evaporates the sea, the wind blows the vapor to the field, the rain feeds the plant, the plant feeds the animal. Part of being grateful is to actually feel our place in the giving and the thanks. That part of what we may be grateful for is what we have to offer, what we give in our work, in our vocation or vocation, in our presence, in our love, in our intelligence or creativity, in our music or in our dance or in our gardening or in our scholarship, or in our in our enjoyment of others. Even enjoying music is also a gift. Uh, Stefano and I were talking about, we saw a, a, a dance a true called Sankai Juku. Uh, anybody here see Sankai Juku? Yeah, they were just here. Yeah, They're a buto, Japanese buto, and it's just amazing amazing. If you can ever go see Sankai Juku, please, it's total Dharma, total Dharma. And it's an amazing gift, and, they, and the one fellow who's the lead has been there forever. He he has to be close to 70, 60, 70, I don't know. You know, he's not a young man, and it's vigor it's its physically demanding. The, and it, things are very slow, slow. And, and the postures, the movements, the mudras, and the It's beautiful. But what I was taken by was the thanks that was given to them. You know, the audience, everybody on their feet, clapping, 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 clapping. It was fun. People were clapping. (laughs) You know, some people, because it was in the spirit of the Bhutto. and, but it was, but but what was given back, and then of course they never left character, so they came up for the bow, and they go, and you could feel the bow, the the gratitude for the thanks, that it just keeps going both ways, and of course as they do that, everybody's just totally taken by them that they're not breaking character they actually because they know that to live it to, to really to that, that any art is to really live it and they express it in that way so the the Thanksgiving is not just in The giving, but the heartfulness that comes in appreciation appreciation for what's given. That it connects us with our heart, with our love. Gratitude in Buddhism is really an expression of love, it's an expression of the goodness of our heart. One of my teachers said, when you're in touch with gratitude, you're in touch with reality. That the whole, our life is given. Actually, somebody, that's another quote is coming to me from Dogen. He says something like, "To, um, to receive a body and to give up a body is both giving. To receive a body and to give up a body. Both forms of giving. He's saying even life, life and death are both forms of giving. I mean, really, who gave us this life? Where does it come from? Can we appreciate that it's given, even for a moment? Doesn't mean you got to appreciate it every moment of your life, but just for a moment that we're alive, mysterious, temporal. Momentary, effervescent, and will disappear. Let's see. Where's Hakuin? Here's Hakuin. He says All beings by nature are Buddha as ice by nature is water. Just that is almost enough. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Those who hear this truth even once, listening with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing right now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes, this very place, the lotus land, this very body, Buddha. Just to be alive is enough, said Suzuki Roshi. This very place, the lotus Land. this very body, the Buddha. It's fun to talk about giving thanks. It's such a beautiful quality of our heart that we even have gratitude, that we can appreciate. So we don't even want to take that for granted. I guess it could have been some other way, you know, that we didn't have this quality that we wouldn't appreciate. But it sure feels like life, when we don't appreciate it, it's really, it's really barren. It's really dukkha when we don't appreciate at least on some level. It's, it means we're having a really hard time, generally. and so our view is obscured by the suffering. One of my, maybe the most important piece of literature in my life has been the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg. And as many of you know, it's the 50th anniversary of that poem, the first reading of that poem here in San Francisco. And if you don't know the poem, the poem is Alan's kind of lion's roar, where he really really, um, said what he saw about reality. And he did it in, I think there's four sections. The first section is... He describes, starts, uh, I saw the best minds of my generation starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters searching for the ancient heavenly connection with the starry dynamo of night. I'm losing it now, but something like that. He starts by describing the reality he saw in the 50s. And the suffering that he saw, and the and the seeking for truth or reality or the divine or God or Buddha, and he describes it for stanza after stanza the the suffering and as people didn't know how to find it in this sterile American nuclear concrete world of the fifties, and then he describes in more deep the second part. He describes in more detail the what he calls Malik, Malik uh, the solidities, the concrete, the, the armies, the nuclear world that they were struggling against, uh, the black and whiteness, the, the kind of lack of authenticity, of realness, of aliveness, of creativity. And then the third section is, is about compassion. It's about his friend, Carl Solomon, who's in a mental institution. And so he, he describes him in the mental institution, and each stanza, most of the stanzas end with, I'm, or begin with, I'm with you in Rockland. I'm with you in Rockland, where you are losing the, the game of the absolute ping-pong of the abyss, you know, where he was really losing his mind, Carl Solomon. And, and over and over again, Alan says, I'm with you in Rockland, I'm with you in your suffering." It's very moving, very moving to me personally. And then the fourth part is the footnote to Howell. So he do, he he talks about the uh, suffering and seeking that he sees, and then the institutionalized um, um, uh, ignorance that he sees, and then the suffering, very personal, of his friend, and the compassion that's there. And then the fourth part is the footnote to Howell. And I'd like to end by reading the footnote to Howell to you. And it's a long, slightly long piece. Longer than I usually read, but I really love this. He begins, holy, 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 holy. The world is holy. The soul is holy, the skin is holy, the nose is holy, the tongue and cock and hand and asshole, holy. Everything is holy, everybody's holy, everywhere is holy, every day is an eternity, every man's an angel. So in some sense this is the pointing towards freedom, towards awakening. Towards the more fundamental understanding of reality, and he continues. He says, "The bum's as holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as you, my soul, are holy. The typewriter is holy. The poem is holy. The voice is holy. The hearers are holy. the The ecstasy is holy." And then he talks about his friends Holy Peter, Holy Alan, Holy Solomon, Holy Lucian, Holy Kerouac, Holy Hunky, Holy Burrows, Holy Cassidy, Holy the unknown buggard and suffering beggars, Holy the hideous human angels, Holy my mother in the insane asylum, Holy the cocks of the grandfathers of Kansas, Holy the groaning saxophone, Holy the bop apocalypse, Holy the jazz bands, marijuana, hipsters, peace, and junk, and drums. Holy the solitudes of skyscrapers and pavements. Holy the cafeterias filled with the millions. Holy the mysterious river of tears under the streets. Holy the lone juggernaut. Holy the vast lamb of the middle class. Holy the crazy shepherds of rebellion. Who digs Los Angeles is Los Angeles. Holy New York, Holy San Francisco, Holy Peoria in Seattle, Holy Paris, Holy Tangiers, Holy Moscow, Holy Istanbul, Holy Time in Eternity, Holy Eternity in Time, Holy the Clocks in Space, Holy the Fourth Dimension, Holy the Fifth Internationale, Holy the Angel in Malik, Holy the Sea, Holy the Desert. Holy the railroad, holy the locomotive, holy the visions, holy the hallucinations, holy the miracles, holy the eyeball, holy the abyss, holy forgiveness, mercy, charity, faith, holy, ours, bodies, suffering. Magnanimity, holy, the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. Let's sit for a minute together, please. <coughs> the ordinary bounty of each moment. May the merit of our practice here this evening, may we offer it freely for the benefit of all. May all beings be happy and peaceful, may all beings be free from suffering, free from the suffering of war, and fear, racism and division, of confusion, of hatred, from the suffering of addiction and ignorance. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we discover the truth of the way things are. May we discover the beauty and mystery of every ordinary moment. May all beings be free. Thank you all for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.